If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Want 20% discount on the best earplugs for exercise? Ultra earplugs go in your ears and stay in there. Go to ultraaudio.com, that's U-L-T-R-O, and use the discount code DOM20. That'll save you around $35. That's ultraaudio.com, U-L-T-R-O, and the discount code DOM20. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of Runners Only with Dom Harvey. On this episode, Mike King, part one. 80% of suicidal kids never ask for help and the reason they never ask for help is because they're worried about what society's going to think, say or do and they're worried about disappointing their parents. Not that he needs any sort of introduction, but Mike King was named the New Zealander of the Year in 2019 for his epic work around mental health. He's the guy you think of when you think of Gumboot Friday and I Am Hope, but all of this stuff is just the latest chapter on what has been one hell of a life. In this episode, we talk about his early years, where he was a mongrel mob prospect, uh, a chef in the Merchant Navy, and how he went on to become one of New Zealand's most successful comedians. And in the last quarter of this episode, we start on the mental health stuff. I really hope you guys enjoy this chat with Mike as much as I did, and I hope you can take away some stuff that can help you in your own life. Just before we get into it, big thanks to the sponsors of this episode, my friends at M's Power Cookies. You can give them a follow on Instagram, M's Power Cookies, or buy them online at munchtime.co.nz. That's munchtime.co.nz. These have become my go-to on-the-run snack when I hit the trails, and I'm not the only one. Hannah Wells, the rock star triathlete from Tauranga, she's a fan too. This is actually how she won her first full-distance Ironman event on debut last year, by eating M's Power Cookies on the bike. Yeah, her 35 hours of training a week and her natural talents may have helped, but would she have won the Ironman event without the Power Cookies? We will never know. All right, let's get into it. Hey, runners only, yeah, yeah, let's get it started. Hey, hey. This is Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Fast paced, slow and steady, anywhere you coming. Just want to connect for everyone who loves running. This is Runners Only. Yeah, let's get it started. This is Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Fast paced, slow and steady, anywhere you coming. Just want to connect for everyone who loves running. Hey, Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Runners Only with Dom Harvey and Mike King. Advocate, advocate. How does that? How does that? Non-runner. Uh, well, that's the thing. The podcast is called Runners Only, Mike King, and um, the I know you're a non-runner now. And I spoke to a few people, um, and I said I was meeting you today and getting you on the podcast. And they're like, "Does he run or just to the letterbox?" But I tell you this. I tell you this. Okay. A world exclusive. No one knows. You're the first to find out. Uh, next February with Rick Wells and oh, uh, yeah. Ian Jones. We are doing a triathlon from, wait for it, Cape Brianna to Wellington. So we are swimming, running, and cycling from the top of the North Island to the bottom of the North Island in about eight days. Jeez, you're in fabulous company. So um, you're Rick Wells, Ironman champion from the 80s and 90s. World, world yeah, short yeah. course Ironman champion, Ian Jones. The camo kid. Yep, legendary all black and add on me. And, and <laughs> add on well, you know, Rick said I'm going to raise some money for I Am Hope I'm yeah. gonna, uh, for Gumboot Friday, sorry, mm. for kids counselling. I said, what a great idea. And he goes, I'm going to swim and I'm going to ride and I'm going to... I said, oh, that's cool. Oh, I'll do it, but I can't swim. He said, I'll teach you. So I started in January and uh, couldn't swim a stroke. I uh, never learned to swim. I mean, I could float around in a pool, but I couldn't swim. And uh, I've been doing it ever since. I'm going to, straight after this, I'm going down to Newmarket Pool and um, try and knock out a K down there and just, yeah... And I've been on the bike. The only thing that I'm I'm short of at the moment is the running because of my knees. But I'll get yeah, there. Yeah. Wow. So, um, how old are you now? What are you like? Sixty? I just turned sixty. Yeah. 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 So uh, I want to try you... new adventures. You yeah. Know? But it's, I mean, it's um, 
there is that saying you can't can't teach an old dog new tricks. But I mean, you can you can learn anything at any age, but it, it doesn't get any easier. Was it terrifying getting in the pool? Yeah, I think that I think that saying's null and void. I think yeah. you know that that used to be the saying, and that was just stubbornness. Uh, but anyone who anyone who has seen <clears throat> the transition of my career um, from a chef to comedy and from comedy and and quite a um, you know uh, politically incorrect homophobic sexist racist uh, misogynist uh, comedian you were you were savage yeah I was savage uh, and then to transition out of that into a mental health advocate I think. Um, We've broken the mold and we've mm, proved that people mm, can change. And, yeah. you know, I, I often have people coming to me, you know, because at, at my mental health talks, you know, you've got to balance comedy with reality. And I do that. And, you know, people who like the comedy go, would you, you know, why you ever do stand-up? No. Why not? Because it's not who I am anymore. Yeah, um, yeah. And then they say, would you do Game of Two, uh, Game of Two Halves again? How no, that, you know, that, is, that show was legendary at its time, though. At its time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it was like it was like you know it was like a lot of programs from back then. Benny Hill, you'd never have that mm. again. I mean, you know, and, and that's what it was for me. Yeah. It was the it was the Benny Hill of our day, and yeah. that's where it should stay. Yeah. I mean, even even like way more recent than Benny Hill. If you look at a show like Little Britain from yeah. say ten years ago, yeah, yeah. couldn't get away with that now. Um, yeah, oh man, there's there's so much to um so much to unpack with you, uh so so much to talk about because it's just been a hell of a life. Yeah, I've, it's 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 bonkers. It's nuts. I, I, I introduced you as an, a fucking advocate. <laughs> I, I have had a very fulfilling life, yeah. and you know if I if, you know if on the day I was born, if I you know even five years ago would I would I have known where I was going to be. And do I know where I'm going to be in another five years? The answer is no. I'm just, mm. you know, I've, I, I've spent my whole life uh, with with no self-esteem, always thinking everyone else is better, kids were better than me, faster, stronger, athletically more gifted than I was. And I spent my whole life looking for my purpose. And during that time, I spent my life – like running down this long corridor, just kicking open doors, mm. just kicking open doors, making things happen. Um, in the last few years, I've realized that that was wrong. When you're going down the corridor of life and kicking open doors, hoping to find something, all you find is rooms with more doors. Yeah. So what I do now is I just, I am where I'm meant to be right now. And if there's a door that's open, I'll go in. That's the door I'm supposed to be in. There might be a lion in that door, but it's still where I'm supposed to be at that time. And, and Is that still like saying everything happens for a reason? Yeah. Yeah? yeah. yeah. So I'm just trying to go with the universe and go through the doors, and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad, but always, whether it's good or bad, appreciating that this is where I need to be. There's a lesson here. Mm. I don't know what the lesson is. There's a lesson here. <laughs> and, and become lesson, a parent. Yeah, and the lesson might be, uh, stay the fuck away from life. <laughs> you know. Okay. So, um, but, I mean, you were, you were a, a very successful comedian, like, like a massive, massive star, as big as what you can get in New Zealand. But no comedian's ever going to be named Kiwi Bank New Zealander of the Year. It's weird, eh? That's phenomenal. So, okay, let's go all the way back. So, um, so you're from um, Fanua Pai? Yep, I yeah, grew, up in, Fanua Pai. grew up in Fanua Pai Village. So what do you, what do you like as a kid? Um, I was one of those – so I was a kid that never felt like I was good enough, as I said. And I was um, – you know, biggest hero in my life was my dad. Mm. And I always wanted to impress my dad. I wanted my dad to look at me in front of his mates and go, yeah, that's my boy, future mm. all black, that's my boy. My old man wasn't that sort of – he didn't pat kids on the head. He booted them in the ass. I knew yeah. I was loved, but he was a man of few words. He just didn't show it, didn't show any, any sort no. of vulnerability or anything? No, never. A product, no. Do you think um, just a product of his time? Yeah, abs- 100%. Uh, I realise now that my dad didn't have a dad, so he didn't know how to be a yeah. dad. You know, he was just winging it as he went along, and for him it was work. And he taught me the four rules to being a man, protect your family, provide for your family, give your kids a better opportunity than you have, and never show weakness. And those four things for me added up to work. My love language with my kids was always money. Why? Because I didn't have any, you know. Mm. Uh, you know, we never went on holiday, so, you know, 
with my kids, we went to Fiji, we went to Raro, we went to all of these, Australia, places that I'd never been when I was a kid. So uh, as a kid growing up, I had no self-esteem, uh, so I was loud and obnoxious. I did what <laughs> most Kiwi kids do. You know, I was just super loud, yeah. you know, and um, always trying to press my dad. You know, sadly it couldn't happen. So I was always looking to be world champion at something. Mm. This was a standard that I thought my dad had set for me. I had to be – so I was a great starter of projects, yeah. uh, rugby, you know, soccer, anything. I was looking to be a world champion, running, even tried running. I tried everything. And as soon as I knew I couldn't be world champion, like better than average wasn't good enough. Mm. You know, best of my school, not good enough. I had to be world champion. And so I was always looking for that thing. And um, at eight years old, I, a mate of mine told a joke in front of a – a whole lot of kids and no one laughed and they started mocking him and tried to get him to tell a joke again. And I told the joke. I told exactly the same joke and everyone laughed. Why? What was the – was it timing? Was it uh, I delivery? I, I have no clue. People often say, you know, like, oh, you know, you're – you know, telling jokes must be really hard for you. And, you know, for me it's easy. It's like saying to Eric Clapton, must be hard to play the guitar. Mm. For him, it's easy. I, I don't know what it is. I just had a gift for it. I knew I was good at it, and it saved me. Like I, I, I never hit puberty till I was nearly eighteen years old. So if you know when you're going through high school in West Auckland, and you know people whose balls haven't dropped get mocked mercilessly, <laughs> um, so you have to use the skills that you've got. So I had two skills. One uh, was comedy. But two, I wasn't afraid of getting knocked out, so I would just I would always throw first punch, and I would just get in there, and you know, so people went, "This kid's crazy," so I wasn't picked on. So my comedy that really helped. Yeah. My, my angry, my anger, I guess that that really helped too. I was four foot eleven, but you know, I got away with a lot of stuff because I was a crazy kid. Yeah, were, were, were you an angry kid? Yeah, I was. Yeah, why? Why are we angry? When you're striving to, you know, when you're striving for the approval of the the big people in your life and you're not getting it, you you got two options. You curl up in a ball and you cry or you lash out. Mm. I was a lasher out, you know. Um, So, but but comedy was always my go-to. And I told my dad I want to be a comedian. He went, yeah, you can't be a fucking clown. That's not a job. You got to, have, you know, like you've, you, you, you got to have a, you got to have a trade, mate. What, what was, what was your dad's job? What was his line of work? So my dad was a salesman. Oh, yeah. My dad was a salesman. He ended up a gardener. He was, you know, he was. My my dad was a very charismatic, good looking fella. Great sportsman. You know, um, he he could he could play any musical instrument. He could play any instrument. Couldn't read music, but if he couldn't play it, like one day when I was eight years old, he bought a home a set of bagpipes. The next day, every cat in the neighborhood wanted to sleep with those bagpipes. He could he could do anything. Amazing. He was a uh, a great sportsman, single figure handicap golfer, left hand, right handed, mm. good footy player, good looking fellow with lots of friends. I want to be just like my dad. So, Leo, you, you, the first two things you said about your dad were good-looking and charismatic, and yeah. uh, you, you tick those two boxes. No. Don't you think? No. Oh, you've got when a, I was a kid, like, as a kid, I was an ugly child. <laughs> no, seriously. Four foot eleven, buck teeth, big ears, rubber lips, yeah. had a massive head. Like, it looks normal now, Tommy. It looks normal now. But you, I was born with this head. Right. Imagine this head on a little <laughs> bubble's body. Funny. I could show you a picture of me and my David Bain top <laughs> with my with my with my massive head. So I was you know, <laughs> like a bobblehead. I, re- I, I remember this is true. My brother was really good looking, and he was Dad's favorite. He got a nickname. His nickname was Butch. He was a good looking kid, and uh, I remember a girl I had a crush on, Debbie Lazarus. I'll never forget. You know, and he used to go to the pool and watch her in a bikini and, you know, lie on my little bone and go, ah, 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 she's amazing. And I remember saying to her, she was one of my best mates, right? And I said to her, you know, so me and my brother used to play this game, I'm better than you at this, I'm better than you at this. He was an artist and all kinds of things. And uh, I remember saying to Deb, oh, like, I'm better than I'm better looking than Brian. And she went, <laughs> no. I went, like, and like, I, I was crushed. I was seriously mm. crushed because I always thought I was a good look. And she went, no. And um, and she said, have you seen your head? And I was like, <laughs> what, what's wrong with my head? And then 
At the, around about the same time, I was at Henderson Square, you know, trying on uh, a, a pair of pants, and it was the first. You know those mirrors where they have the mirrors connecting in the what's the name? Yes, in the dressing room. Yeah. And it was the first time I saw the side of my head. <laughs> I looked like that character out of Enemy Mine with Lewis Gossett Jr., that big cone at the back of your head. I tell you, it's oh, all you're, a, No, you're exaggerating. No, no. This is comedy tra- no, for exaggeration. No, no, it, it traumatized me so much that I tried to get avoid people looking at me side on. Seriously, it was it was such a traumatizing experience because you only ever see your face. Mm. You don't. <laughs> no, seriously, you don't see the rest. I've got to, I've got to find this picture for you. Yeah, uh, thanks or it didn't happen. I. I feel like it's everyone's got their own insecurities, yeah, and I feel right. like this was no, yours. Right. But this, it was in your own head, though. Yeah, and of course it was your in own my giant head. head. But that's my own giant head. But that was enough. That was always going to be yeah. enough. Uh, where am I? You'll love this. Uh, so this is how look, look how young I am. You know how, you know how old I am, there, Dom? You look like you're. Um, you said you hit puberty at eighteen. You got a moustache yeah. there. I'm twenty two. That there's thirty six. Thirty six. Thirty six years Fuck. old. See, what I'm seeing there is that's a that's a handsome dude. That, that is a handsome yeah, dude. Yeah, that's a good-looking that, yeah, man. I did grow it. My, my dad said you would grow. I'd grow into my head, and I did, <laughs> and I did. Where is this bloody picture? You can never find them when you yeah, need them. Yeah, no, because it's fake news. Yes, yeah, fake news. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Oh, my goodness gracious me. I can't find it, but just trust me. I've shown it at, I've shown it at um, talks when I give my corporate talks, and, and people – Go, oh my God! Look at you! Yeah. No, I can't find it. I'm sorry. Okay, no worries. It doesn't exist. I, I don't. I don't it's believe it anyway. I, I feel like it was. It was in in your own mind. Yeah, yeah. Like, like most of these things. Like, yeah. Okay, so so um, so you crack that joke at school, and you you get the laugh that the other kid doesn't. Yeah. And I'm guessing that's like a it's like a dopamine rush. Like it's yeah. a it's a real adrenaline rush. So then, why why do you become a chef? Because uh, my dad wanted me to have a trade. Right. And I also, when, when are we talking here? Like 70s? 70s, yeah, 70s 80s? Yeah, 1970s. I'm so guessing I, like comedy wasn't really in a viable. In 1977, I went and worked at our, um, our Matador restaurant in Auckland, New Zealand's first licensed restaurant. Then I went and worked at Bonaparte's, Fisherman's Wharf, Palomino at Henderson, and ended up finishing my apprenticeship at Al Trovador. I went to um, chef school. I was in the same class as Judith Tabron. From Seoul and Meccano, one of the girls. Wow. She's in New Zealand Chef's Hall of Fame. Yeah. You know, but she. Were you good? No, I was terrible. I'll tell you how terrible I was. I'll put it this way. Okay. I'll put it to you this way. I can copy anything a chef shows me and, and replicate it perfectly. I, I don't have the ability to look at a box of ingredients and go, I'm going to turn it into this. I remember one time. Judith got 10 out of 10 for a sauce that she made. And when she wasn't looking, I grabbed her sauce and took it up for marking, right? <laughs> and I took it up, and the freaking teacher gave me 8 out of 10. Yeah. And, you know, me being me, I was like, huh, what a load of shit that is. I gave, this is Judith's sauce. She gave her 10 out of 10, and he only gave me 8 out of 10. She goes, yes, but Judith bought charisma with it. What does that mean? Well, that's part of cooking. Right, right. Yeah. Judith would always be immaculate. There wouldn't be a spot of sore. I was always covered in shit. My hat wasn't starched. So, I, you know, so I, I did cooking. Um, you know, I was trying to find myself early and um, I joined, um, uh, I started prospecting for the Mungra mob. Did you really? Yeah. Why? At, Why at did seven, that seem like a good 17? idea? Well, I was trying to fit in. Right, you right. You just try and you fit just... in. You know, I'm trying to I'm trying to find myself. These guys were looking super cool for me. I just started drinking. Mm. You know, I'm, I was smoking weed at 13, and just so for me, it was just uh, you know, it was part of a family. Mm. And then uh, we we as a prospect, we had to go and throw some uh, Molotovs cocktails at the Highway 61 pad. Me and another prospect. Uh, we did that, and they chased us. And it was only in Sandringham Road, actually. And then they chased us, went to run back to the car where the prayers was, and he'd taken off. So we were on our own. I'm running down the road, find him down the road. These guys are right up our ass, jump into the car and think we're safe. And instead of driving away, he tried to run them over. Mm. And they were diving. We were on the footpath, you know, just 
And I was like, whoa, what the hell is this? And then we get, when we left, I go, what would happen if, you know, you'd hit them? And he just looked at me and he started laughing and I went, oh, <laughs> I was going to be driving the car. You know, that was the deal. And yeah. at that point there, I went, I'm not going not to jail <laughs> for you. Yeah, yeah. There's no way in hell I'm doing this. So I joined the Merchant Navy. Right. When I saw my uncle and joined the Merchant Navy and went away to sea for the next 14 years. Oh, is that right? Is that, is that after Sheffing? Yeah, no, yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I joined the – I'd qualified with my yeah. London City and Guilds and uh, the first job I went and got was, um, um, yeah, I shipped out. Right. You enjoy that? No, I hated it. Why did you do it for so long? Um, because the money was so good. Right, you know, right. And, the, and the time on, time off, um, it was horrible. You know, I just got into, <laughs> I just got into a relationship. I just got married. And, you know, my wife was cheating on me and, you know, there was no communication. Mm. It was letters back in those days. You right. wrote letters, you know. Uh, you had a phone call and she had to be home and you'd run down to the end of the wharf to make a phone call, collect, and she's not home. So for me it was trauma, mm. just constant trauma. So I just turned to drugs and alcohol. You can get all the drugs you want and get all the alcohol you want just to survive, you know, and then get home and fight mm. and all kinds of, you know, with, the, with, with yeah. the person you're supposed to be in love with. And, yeah, so it was horrible. It was very traumatic that whole oh, that's time. that's awful. Yeah. yeah. So that was you, – you're married again now. You've only been married twice? No, three times. Oh, three times. So, so, so the first one failed when you were in the Navy? Uh, the first one failed when I walked out. Right, I, right. I, I, I just couldn't do it anymore. I mean, I still loved it, but I just couldn't do it anymore. It was too traumatizing, and I remember. I remember that day it happened, and I remember how it happened. She was at the Inner Circle Pub in Avondale, and I just got home from sea, went down and saw her, and went, you know, sorry, we're done. And she just gave me a big hug, and because I understand, and you know, that was it. Just mm-hmm. walked away on that one, and straight into the next one. And Did I married. You guys have any kids from the first marriage? Or no, no, she no. had a daughter. Right, right. <clears throat> uh, she was a lot older than me too. She was about eleven years older than yeah. I was. And then I uh, met my next wife, second wife, and we had three kids, and I'm on my third wife now. Yeah, yep. yeah. Oh, okay. So when did the comedy start? Where did you so, did you find you sort of um, even subconsciously like honed that when you're in the navy, like just cracking yeah, jokes that's in front exactly of exactly what yeah. happened. So I was I, I spent a lot of my time on the inter island ferries. And so there was always a big audience. We had big crews there, and there was always a big audience. And I remember he used to crack jokes all the time. And then a friend of mine, this is a good story. I never told the story. A friend of mine uh, called uh, Max Wilby. Um, Max said to me, you know, you're a really funny guy. You should think about being a comedian. And I said, like, oh, don't be silly, Max. You know, I wouldn't even know how to do that. He said, well, what I'm thinking is every time you crack a joke – and people laugh, write it in a book. Write it in a book. Write the punchline in the book. If you think of a funny thought, put it in the book. Put it in the book. And then when you go to write your comedy, if you're looking for a punchline, go to your book and there'll be something funny in there. I did it the other way. What I what I did was I you know, I still got the book, but in this thing I would put all of these jokes and punchlines and in, and instead of um, writing something to suit I would go backwards. I would start with the punchline and go backwards. The big mistake I noticed when I first started comedy was comedians would start out with a shaggy dog story, and it would be a really good story. What, is, what does that mean, a shaggy dog story? Well, it means what you- I've got a really great setup. It's like I'm taking you down a street to show you a house, and you're looking at all these fantastic houses, and you go, oh, fuck, this is going to be good. And then you get down to the end of the street, and yeah. it's an empty section. Yeah. And you're thinking, what the fuck you bring me down here for? <laughs> I always started with the flash house down the end of the street right. and worked my way backwards. And then if the shaggy dog story wasn't funny, I would always have funny to fall back on. Yeah, yeah. That was, that was my so – end with the high. End with the high always. Right. So for me, my comedy career started out with the character. Who am I? Who am I? Well, I'm the Māori boy, so I'm going to use that. There are no Māori comedians. Jeremy Corbett, you know, John Bridges, David mm, Downs, yeah. all of these white, Willie DeWitt, Mark, yeah. Mark Wright, they're all white. So, so I'm, I'm going to use that card. And, and I always, you know, so my persona, I love Eddie Murphy. I love Richard Pryor. So good suits are important. That look was important. 
And Bill, Billy T. James, was he like a big influence where you're like, oh, I can I can do that sort of shtick? Yeah, no, of- so you see, Billy was a musician. Yeah. And Billy used to tour around England, so, you know, he was playing in a lot of those cosy club type uh, arrangements. And so he watched a lot of English comedians, so he brought their jokes home, mm. you know. And, and true story. When I was 15 at Al Trovador, we turned into a cabaret. So Billy played at uh, our restaurant uh, Wednesday to Saturday, two shows a night. So I got to watch the legend. I saw him up mm. close. I cooked his meal. I listened to the stories of him and Tui Taka and the show band. So I got to spend two years of my life. And this is two years before Radio Times even came out, Billy's first show. Right. So I got to see him in the beginning. And, and I've always been really resentful that every documentary that's been out about Billy, there's a whole lot of young comedians or comedians from my era who didn't know the man at all yeah, that were yeah. talking about him like they were experts. And I was just like, no one ever you asked never, me. You never met the fuck. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So we spend, you know, I spent a lot of time with the guy. I spent a lot of time with Tui Tekka. I remember when he was living in a flat in Mount Wellington, a shitty flat, and he had a Rolls Royce. Why? Because no other Maldives had a role. You know, so we used to go around there and watch, you know, watch Tui get into his car and the seat automatically adjusts and Missy would get in. So, you know, I, I worked as a roadie in these bands when, like, you know, I was the only one uh, at the restaurant that had a ute. The boys needed their gear, so they used to take me to the Crypt nightclub. They'd take me to pubs when I'm 17 years old. Mm. It's 20 to get in. When the police came in, they'd hide me under the table. You know, I just... I, you know, I, I had a really, really, really rich life yeah. where I got to, you know, spend. And I always felt like I was older than everybody else. You, do you know what I mean? Did you wait, the photo you showed me before of you in your 30s, you look very, you look younger than everyone else. Yeah, but, but I'd always associated with people older okay. than myself. Okay. I didn't, asso- like, I just found that young people were dumb. Or people were, your same age. Yeah. The, well, they were, you know, they were into girls, but, you know, girls were unavailable to me. I had no hair on my nuts. So. <laughs> You know, I, I avoided. Girls. That's a, that's a look now. That's yeah. a look. But 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 I avoided. And I mean, it's a true story. I remember saying to my dad at seventeen, I go, "What the fuck is what the fuck is going on, Dad?" And he just laughed and he goes, "You'll thank me for that. You'll thank me for what, that." Being a late bloomer. Yeah, being a late bloomer. How so? Well, because when I'm you know when I'm yeah, thirty three, yeah. I look you know yeah, look I still young. look young. You know, yeah. I was asked my age right up till I was in pubs right up till I was thirty six years old. Mm. You know. I'm 60. I think I'm in pretty good nick for a 60 Yeah, you look great. Yeah. You look great. God, I was a late starter as well. I remember that the first time I saw some wispy blonde pubes on my nuts, I was like 15 or 16. I was so excited. Oh, well, I tell you this. <laughs> so this, excited. This is a true story. I remember this Anne McGregor who said to me one time, talking about it, I said, I've got hair on my balls. She went, <laughs> she went this is what she said. She went, I was about 15. She went, white ones. <laughs> <laughs> Want 20% discount on the best earplugs for exercise? Ultra earplugs go in your ears and stay in there. Go to ultraaudio.com, that's U-L-T-R-O, and use the discount code DOM20. That'll save you around $35. That's ultraaudio.com, U-L-T-R-O, and the discount code DOM20. So the... um. So the comedy thing, you started quite late, eh? When did you do your first stand-up set? Like 30-something? Uh, 30, 30, 35, 35. That's 30. a fucking late start. Uh, yeah, it is Why? Really late Why? Start. What was it? Well, did you want to do it before and you were just nervous and you kept putting oh, it there off? There was or? never any opportunity, really. Okay. Um, so I broke my leg playing rugby. And um, I was I saw a comedy advertised at um, uh, – there was a pub on um, – Albert Street, I can forget the name of it. And I went in there and I watched these guys and, you know, eh, lasted about half half an hour. You're just sitting there thinking, oh, I could do better. Yeah, that was shit. Yeah, it was, yeah. They were more vaudeville type, you know, um, magician-y type comedians. Okay. Was, and, it, was that just what people were doing at the time? Or? Uh, yeah, a guy called Late Night Mike was there and, you know, it just it, – I was bought – I travelled overseas. We bought – you know, film of Richard Pryor, of you yeah. know, Eddie Murphy. And so I, that was my style of Bill Cosby. I, that was, so my style of comedy was stories about life. These guys were making up stories. So then um, I went to Kitty O'Brien's. I saw that there was a thing down there at Kitty O'Brien's and I watched and I watched and I thought, these guys are so good. And I sneakily filmed. I had a, 
had a bag, a camera, an old VHS camera. God, it must have been massive, like a handicam. Yeah, in a bag. <laughs> and I just sat my bag on my knee and I filmed. Not to steal material, yeah. to go home and, and, and it. break it down and find out why things weren't funny and why things were funny. And then I saw a guy called Andrew Clay. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Andy Clay is the fucking originator mm. of New Zealand stand-up. Never, ever, ever got credit. But he was the man that started comedy in New Zealand. Everyone else before Andy Clay was a fake-ass bitch. He was the man. Why? Because he told stories about life. Is that right? I, 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 about, know, I, I know Andrew. Like, I met him through radio circles. He was at Holdecky for a Really? Is that right? About life. He, he'd come back from Australia. He'd done the hard yards in the stand-up comedy scene in Australia and survived. He came back and talked about living with his grandmother in Selwyn Village and, and you know, like sneaking mm. out of the car and sneaking into her thing because, you know, young people couldn't live there. He was... A fucking genius. And I went, that's a stand-up comedian. So the next, uh, I went home and I practiced the routine. I was, wasn't was like everyone else. I had two kids, so I set up in my garage a couch and I had all their toys there. And one of the big mistakes that people would ask is they would ask the audience a question and they'd only have one answer for the 90% answer. So there's three answers an audience can give you. The answer that everyone expects, the out-of-the-box answer, and I'm an asshole. I just want to destroy you answer. And if you don't have a response for each one of those three, you're dead in the water. Mm. So I used to, little things that they would do, that they'd have one great joke and they wouldn't walk. And they would stay there for another extra 10 minutes trying to get it back and never get it back. So I just learned all of their mistakes. And uh, so the next week, uh, I had my little wee routine. Now, how many minutes are we talking? Like five uh, minutes, ten minutes, ten minutes. So, ten minutes. but here was the deal, right? I studied, mm. and so I took the Rolling Stones approach to comedy. So, uh, the, lots of heroin. <laughs> no, well, no. We'll get, so, we'll get to that. Get to that no. So the Rolling Stones <laughs> used to sing Chuck Berry covers, right? Right, and then they'd throw in one or two original songs. So I went in with some joke jokes, which I put myself in, and so instead of three guys went to the bar, me and a couple of mates went to this right, bar. Right. You know, um, so I started out with um, with lo- joke jokes with local references, uh, and then I had a couple of original jokes. And you know, I got there, and the you know, so I walked into the pub looking like Eddie Murphy, had my suit on, I was ready to go. Said to Paul Horan, hey, uh, how do I get on the stage? <laughs> you come back in six weeks, we have a rookie night. And I go, who's on? And he runs through the list. I said, look, I've been watching you guys for the last six weeks. I think all your comedians are shit. I think I'm funnier than them. I pulled out 400 bucks out of my wallet. I said, here's $400. If no one laughs or anyone walks out, you can buy the whole bar drinks and you'll never see me again. He snatched the money out of my hand, went out the back. 400 bucks. So this was, um, like, say, 25, 25, 30 years ago. That's, yeah, a, that's yeah. a shit ton of that's cash. a shit ton of cash. Yeah, and it yeah. would have bought the whole bar drinks. Yeah. So uh, he went out the back, and he must have said to them, because they all poked their heads out the door, and they were all <laughs> looking, and they are all nodding. Yeah, put them on. Now, I was fully prepared to go first, right? Mm. This is how much I studied. I'm ready to go first. First was the hardest. Comedy wasn't a thing in New Zealand, but I was ready for it. Mm. David Downs come out and went, so you're the new guy. I went, yeah, yeah. He says, where do you want to go in the lineup? And in my head I went, are you fucking shitting me? You're giving me the choice? Instantly I said, last and the second. He went, tough slot. I go, what the fuck do you know? This is how naive you are. So how it used to work was three comedians in the first, two in the second, and then the headliner. What used to happen, the three top com- first comedians had a hard time because no one knew what comedy was. Right, right. So I was trying to figure out what the fuck was going on. By the first break, that have all had beers, we get it now. So they're with the next guy that's come. Okay, and the guy at the second, the last guy in the second, got the easiest run. By the third, I've had more drinks. Now I'm funnier than you. Yeah, so yeah. I took you know thing in uh, last in the second. So when it comes time to be packed house, when it comes time to me getting on. 
David Downs get up, say, hey, we've got this Maori guy who thinks he's funnier than everyone else. And everyone had killed up to that point. Mm. So the audience, ooh, you know, don't worry, don't worry. You know, it's his first time. If he's, if, if he's no good, we'll all laugh, which got a big laugh. Yeah. You know? And if he's terrible, we'll start cheering and we'll start. And so everyone's right into it. And then, hey, here he is. So the first thing I did was I, I put David Downs down straight away. <laughs> Bang. You know, uh, and then the... The South Africans were touring at the time, and it was the first time Chester um, Chester Williams, the first black guy, was touring with yeah. them. So I had, you know, I had a joke using an accent, you know. Oh, see the South Africans here, yeah, you know, Chester's here. But someone's got to carry the bags, and, you know, and people found that funny. It's racist, but it was funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I, I moved into my joke jokes. But, I, you know, so the joke jokes was was about me going to Shortland Street party, everyone was short. I'm standing there at this party. I look over in the corner. There's Tim Wera Morrison and Paul Holmes standing under a coffee table. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, That's good. I saw Belinda Todd, who was big at the time. Yeah, I thought, yeah. wow, she's sexy. I said, "Hey, Belinda, want to come back to uh, want to come back to my place, you know, for coffee, and then we'll make love." She, <laughs> uh, no, I've got my menstrual cycle. I said, "Sweet, I got my ute outside. Chuck it on the back." <laughs> Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You'll be cancelled for that now. Yeah, I know. But so uh, this was huge. Yeah. Like, you know, and and I got to my second to last joke and it fucking slayed. I had one more joke, but the second to last joke slayed and I was like, that's me. Hey, you've been great. Thanks very much. And I went off to the chance of more, 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 Mm. more. Little did I know when I went up, and this is how fucking crazy my life is. Ben Alton had walked in as the MC was introducing me. Ben Alton, Young Ones, Black Adder. Uh, yeah, now one of the massive author, yeah, best-selling yeah. author. King He's of on a book tour. And he comes in, he sees the intro, he sees me smash it, he comes out the back. I'm standing in a corner, I'm going, yeah, I fucking own this, man. And Ben Alton comes over, he goes, oh, right, you know, just watch your gig, you know, is that your first time? He said, that can't be your first time. So we had this, whether it was my first time, I said, I've done Family Gifts, mate, if that was your first time, you're going to be famous. Mm. And I was like, holy shit, really? He goes, yep, got to go, and he's out the back door. Wow. Everyone comes, what did Ben Alton say? I said, fucking Ben Alton said, I'm going to be famous. Yeah, and, and you were, like, straight away. You Metro Magazine uh, named you, like, a comedian of the year or whatever. Yeah, you were yeah, named yeah. New Zealand comedian yeah, of the yeah, year. Yeah, yeah, just... So the, the success happened really quickly. Yeah, real yeah. quick. But I, like, so the boys would go, let's go out and let's do this. I practised. I went, so I filmed that performance and every performance after. Why? Because I wanted to know where I was making the mistakes. One of the things I used to do was I used to stroll backwards and forwards. I got seasick watching myself, (laughs) you know. Another thing that I used to do was rub my face. And so there's conscious thing. And then another time, like, they didn't laugh at a joke that I thought was really funny. I watched the film back. I realized I'd stood on the punchline. Just when they're about to laugh, I panicked and went on to the next one. So I stood on my punchline. So I learned to consciously count one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi. And then I had a tactic where that wasn't the joke. That was the lead-in. And then the real punchline comes second. So I studied and I studied and I studied. And I had, because I'd always done, you know, family gigs where the material always had to be new every week I would change it and Corbett used to come up to me and go hey man you, you know you can use that stuff from last week and I go no that's what you do man I'm fucking <laughs> you know this is my arrogance right you needed that yeah. though I remember Paul Horan came up and gave me $20 you know this night that I did my thing and he said you know I said, what's that for he goes no no that's that's your pay you were you're so great and I went no you keep it man I want to own this shit mm. that's you know that that was my arrogance yeah. Did um did did the others were you popular with other comedians or were they like God oh, this guy's a jerk Yeah probably Well but I feel but like I, I feel like you, you've probably got the cheek or the charisma to carry it off but uh Well you know I could be whatever I want because I was the best You know there was only one guy better than me and that was Andrew Clay Yeah Andrew Clay So what did I do I'd watch other comedians go up to Andy and try to make friends with him He was like Fuck off I'm not teaching you anything He immediately became my best friend immediately. And him and I did the first stand-up comedy tour around New Zealand. Mm. Him and I were just glued together. And I learned as much. I just... 
got as much knowledge out of him as I could. Mm. I watched him. He was a pro, man. Mm. I remember we did a gig down the line and, you know, he's opening and there's a whole lot of fucking Maldives in the audience and they started chanting, fuck off, fuck off, fuck <laughs> off, fuck off. So he brought me, he brought mm. me on. And, you know, and these guys are like, oh, fuck it. And they started talking in the bar and I'm like, true story. And I, you know, you can please beep this, but I went, uh-huh. shut the fuck up, you black cunts. And they cracked up laughing. <laughs> it seems like oh, a, that's a high risk maneuver. Yeah, in Howard. Yeah. This guy's fucking awesome. And Andy come running up and grabbed the microphone and said, hey, man, if I'd said that, you guys would have killed me. And this guy went, I thought we told you to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> so I did a killer. I did a killer half hour, and he'd done 10 minutes. We went up to get paid, and the publican says, I paid for one hour. This guy needed fucking 10 minutes. <laughs> and Andy went, well, get fucked. And he went back down, and he got on the microphone for exactly 20 minutes copying shit, but he did yeah. his shit. That's a pro. And then he, when he came off, we went up, now give us our fucking money, we're out of mm. here. You know, I just I love Andy Clay. Yeah. Why? Um. Yeah, and, and it's um. It's good that you're 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 giving him the praise that that uh, he he deserves. Why, why don't you think he was as successful as what he should have been? Because he's a white guy. He's a white guy in 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 in, in a show where you know the stars of those uh, of those times because they were all involved were Jeremy Corbett, John Bridges, David. Downs. Yeah, well, they're all white guys. Yeah, but. They started the comedy. Right, right. So that, there was no way they were going to let in. Like, and I'm not saying this was a conscious yeah, decision. Yeah. This is not a conscious decision. But there was no way in hell another white guy was going to come along and take, you know, take their crown. And, yeah. you know, I'm not saying that they did it and they blocked them or anything. Yeah. But, but, you know, they were the ones that were picked by TV. Like, our first show on TV was a comedy gala, mm. and Andy was out there telling jokes, and um, I came out with a sign saying "Give back our land, honky," you know, <laughs> which you know, uh, which was hilarious. Yeah. We we smashed it, um, but but because we were controversial, you know, we got cut from the show. We were the f- mm. oh no, I'll say this without a fucking. Without, without an ounce of fucking um, arrogance or anything, we were the best. Yeah. We smashed it. But I made a mistake. I went in, our first comedy gala, Willie DeWitt was mentoring me, and I love Willie for the fact that he helped me. And uh, I walked out the back. There was a guy called, um, he used to be um, used to be Andy. Andy, uh, what's his name from TVNZ? He still, he only just. Oh, like, Andy Shaw. Andy Shaw. Yeah, that's right. He and, ended up being an executive. And he was holding court <laughs> yeah. in the in the civic, in the dressing room, and all the comedians were there. And uh, I walked in and I said, hey, has anybody seen, um, has anyone seen Willie DeWitt in the middle of an Andrew Shaw story? And he went, what the fuck? And there was a sea of comedians. He goes, who do you think you are? And I looked at him and went, nice one, Stu. <laughs> and I left. A reference to Stu Dennison. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, because they were competing. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, Stu was dressed as fucking guy from ACDC, you know. So, yeah, school uniform. Yeah, yeah. Cat. So, uh, and I left. And I remember um, none of the comedians, they were all just, oh, fuck, we want to laugh, but this is our career. And so I... <laughs> And I left, and Kevin Smith came up to me, and he went, Kingy, that's the funniest fucking thing I've ever seen, but that's going to ruin your career. And, but my attitude back then was, well, I don't give a fuck what these people think. I don't care what they think. I'm not looking for a career in television. You know, I'm a stand-up comedian, pure. And mm. I say whatever the fuck I want to say. So that was always my attitude. And we'll let the people decide. And it was the people that decided that I should be on TV. And that's yeah, what- ultimately, like if, if you've got enough um, enough love from the public yeah. and enough heat around you, yeah. then even if an executive's got an ego issue and doesn't like you, they're going to have to like basically suck it up. And it's a motto that I've taken yeah. through my whole career. You know, even, even in mental health, you know, 
the same thing. I'm blocked at every uh, oh. at every avenue by academics, clinicians, and bureaucrats and, and government. Right, I'm blocked at every avenue. And as I keep saying to them, you can have all the evidence based reports, you can oh. have all the evaluated material, you can have all the academics and all the clinicians, and you can have all the money. But without the people, you ain't got yeah. shit. So yeah. fuck you. <laughs> so uh, you know, still defiant, yeah, right? No, what do you got to? Yeah, you know, yeah. fuck you, your bureaucratic <laughs> arrogance, and it's the same with TVNZ. Mm. You know, the bureaucratic arrogance. I remember true fucking story. An executive at TVNZ told me that he made Billy T. James. The trouble with you, Mike, you're like Billy T. You don't listen. I made Billy T. James. When he came in here, he was me, me, me. And I was like, okay, cool. Uh, so I went went home and, you know, internet was new. But I downloaded a fucking script to Friends and I changed the name from Rangy to Fetu to Wayne and Daryl. And then I just changed the whole prop and I took it and I said, you know, he's talking to me. I said, I've got this fucking sitcom that I've written called Flatmates. Can you have a look <laughs> at it? And he read it and he and has feet on his head and he threw it at me. And he went, you know, that is the most, you know, that the reason that's those characters unbelievable. Da, 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 da. And I pulled out the actual friend script and I threw it on his desk and I went, you just ripped apart the number one comedy <laughs> in the world. What the fuck do you know? And I walked out. And yeah. that was the target on my back from that day. But I, I, yeah, did, we, but I didn't give a fuck. Yeah. And you've got to have that I don't give a fuck attitude. But where, where, where did that come from? Because um, by this stage you've, uh, you've got kids. You got yeah, a mortgage? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But see, I think that's that's the thing. People with those commitments, it's like they need to give a little bit of a fuck. No, Where I, did you no I planned. So I left the Merchant Navy. Uh, leaving the Merchant Navy allowed me to pay off my house, okay. and I had two years of reserve funding. Right. So I had two years to make this shit work. Good runway. You know, yeah. so I just, you know, and for me – I don't. I don't put a toe in the water, Dom. I've never mm. put a toe in the. I jump in both yeah, fucking feet. Yeah. I'm not scared of drowning, mm. you know. And I've done that through my whole life. You I, should have been. You only just learned to swim. Yeah, I know. But <laughs> but that's me. You yeah. know. Uh, I think too often in this world, you know, people are dipping toes in, and mm. you know, and and with our kids today, too many parents are working. Put put ninety nine percent of their energy into the kids' plan B, mm. and it's not their plan B; it's your plan B. Yeah. You know, my plan B was being a chef. You know, and I had to wait till thirty four. I get it. I was lucky though. You know, I had like I looked like a kid, so it didn't matter mm. that I started at thirty four, and I had maturity in behind me. I still looked like a kid, but I had maturity. Yeah. So, and I'd had you know mongrel mob, merchant navy. You know, like I had all of these, all of these. Life's experiences that I could call on, and been through like a marriage breakup by then as well. It was a. I was married to a lesbian woman who used to sleep with other men and other girls. You know, she'd bring other girls home and make me sleep in the bedroom while they sleep. You know, so I had all of this. You know, my heart had been broken so many times. I, I've never felt like I was good enough. I've always had a massive inner critic. Telling mm. me I had him, you know, I've lived with imposter syndrome my whole life. It's funny you say that. I've got the same thing as well. And I watched a, um, a David Letterman thing on Netflix the other day. Billie Eilish, she's got it as well. well I, feel, I feel like it's, it's, a, it's a Kiwi thing as well. No. To agree. No? No. No? The biggest problem facing the world's young people today is an overactive inner critic, mm. self doubt. But what makes it so horrific is they're living in a world where everyone's got their mask on and pretending they've got yes. their shit together. Yeah. There is no vulnerability in the world. And I knew eight, nine, ten years ago that the new language of life is vulnerability. Vulnerability. Yeah. Truth and vulnerability is what is missing uh, in life. I've been on about this since 2008 just sharing my story of, of thing and then... Yeah, um, so was it like, yeah, it was 2006 where you first came out and said you, you suffered depression. Yeah, yeah. Which was, um, well, by the way, we've been talking for 15 minutes and we have, we've, we've, 
we, we haven't even scraped the fucking surface. Uh, part one of the My King podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in this podcast, yeah, I, I, I ask people about their mental health, and I've had, like, so many messages from people saying, hey, it's, it's good that you're talking about this. And I'm like, fuck no, it's not. Like, it's yeah. – Kerwin was doing this 30 yeah. years ago. Yeah. You've been doing yeah. it for – yeah, it's But the nothing. biggest problem facing people today is an overactive inner critic, imposter mm. syndrome. Yeah. We've all got self-doubt. But what makes it – is everyone's wearing their masks and pretending they've got their shit together – and everyone's looking at everyone else thinking they've got it all together. Yeah. And I'm, so they're in a crazy going, I'm the only one. I'm the only one. That's what our kids are living with. Yeah, so if yeah. you're constantly being reminded of your flaws, if you're constantly being told what you do, and you are not seeing any vulnerability, you're not hearing any messages um, of, you know, struggle. And the only time you hear those messages of struggle is when you mention you're struggling. Mm. You know, oh, I know what it's like. Yeah, yeah, Dom. Hey, plenty of other fish in the sea, mate. I had lost my first love too. Here, let me tell you the story. What you think you're saying is this is a universal experience. Mm. What our kids are hearing is, oh, shit. So I start talking about me and you make it all about you. Yeah. And you came out the other side. You're you're useless. Mm. You're hopeless. Everyone's better than yeah. you. This has created the most toxic environment, you know, that, that there's ever been in the mental health sector. Yeah. And and my generation blame young people. They blame they blame social media. They see it's human nature to blame everything around, oh, this is what happened and that's what happened. Someone kills themselves because the girlfriend broke up. The girl, so it's the girlfriend's fault. No, it's not. That's just the straw that broke yeah. the camel's yeah, back. Yeah. There is a whole lot of lads. And this is what we do, though. We focus on the behavior. I, I, I was down in Otago University yesterday talking to a professor that I want some help with on. on and he, he, he was doing a study. And he wanted to know the effects of job loss, relationship breakups on on suicide. And I had to tell him, dude, you're missing the reason people are taking their lives. It's not an impulsive act. This one thing, that that wasn't the – that was just the final straw. Imagine this. You're a kid. You're a young boy. You've never felt valued. You've never felt like anyone cares. You're always you're looking at yourself physically and go, fucking no one's ever going to love me. I'm a loser. You get your first girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, this girl loves me. But now you start thinking, what if she leaves me? Mm-hmm. So suddenly, where are you going? What are you going there for? I want to come too. I want to be with you. All the, you become a power stuck to the rock. Mm-hmm. You're so clingy that this girl goes... <laughs> Fuck, I can't handle this. I can't breathe. And she leaves. So now you're going, well, that's it. You're never going to get it. Bam, I'm gone. You know, and then we go, it's about the girl. No, that is just the final thing. It's the build-up. The single thing behind the majority of suicides is an overactive inner critic. Mm. Tell me this. Do you think... Robin Williams was sitting in his room in the last minutes going, well, I'm having such a great day. Billions of people love me. What can I do? I know. I'll kill myself. I guarantee you he was sitting there and having the same conversation that everyone has. Everyone would be better off without you. You're a burden to everyone. You know, all of these little things, you're better off gone. And we did a study on this using, using letters that the Ministry of Health ignored three big things that we got out of our study was those who ended their life through suicide didn't want to die. Yeah. They wanted their pain to end. They couldn't live with the pain. One, the majority knew that they were loved, Mm. but love wasn't enough. Yeah. And the majority felt like they were a burden and everyone would be better off without them. And finally... It was an impulse, wasn't an impulsive act. The overwhelming majority of people had long-term issues that they either never discussed with anybody for fear of rejection. Uh, they s- couldn't find the help that they needed. They got the help, but it came too late. Or the help that was offered wasn't going to yeah. help them. So, so what you were saying about the um, internal voice thing, uh, 
I fully agree with you. It's like the biggest bully I've got in my life is, yeah. is me. You would never let anyone talk to you the Fuck way you no. talk, to you, talk yourself, right? But it makes it makes absolutely no sense. But I, how do you, how do you fix that? How do you stop that? What's you the solution? Normalize it. So I am hope what we do in schools is we normalize the inner critic, but we don't take a prescriptive approach. We don't walk into schools and go, this is what you're doing, this is what you need to do to fix it. That's what everyone does. So we use a descriptive approach. We talk about our demons growing up. We allow young people to recognize themselves in our story, and we show them how many people, you know, go through it. So I might share a story about, you know, not being able to take a compliment. Someone come around and compliment me on a painting. Oh, bro, who painted the wall? Yeah, I painted the wall. You know, trying to play. Yeah, I painted the wall. What's it mean? Fuck, bro, I didn't know you was a painter. Man, you, you, you could do that professionally, bro. And all I'm thinking is, yeah, but I didn't cut it in properly over there. The colors don't match there. I should have sanded that back better. It's a shit paint job. I'm a shit painter. And then I'll go, how many of you kids think like that? Hands up. Don't look. Just look at me. Hands up. And all the hands go up. I said, now look around. Look around. And the next sound you hear is a room full of kids go, Holy, look at all these, look, look. So we normalize yeah. it. And I said, so look how many people have this, but you never admitted it till today, yeah. have you? No one has ever admitted it. Everyone struggles. I remember going into a school, and so we just use the hands up, hands up, and now look around, look around, look around, and we normalize the inner critic. Um, I had a, uh, I did a school. A teacher said, I've got a Maori boy here, country school. I've got a Maori boy here. He's very angry. Can you talk to him? So I went to talk to him. Hey, man, how's he going? Uh, I'm all right. I'm like, yeah, cool, bro. Cool, cool, cool. Oh, well, good to see you, my bro. And, you know, I might have a chat with you after the, come and listen to the talk. You might find it interesting. You might not. I don't care. So I went up on stage and I told the story and I did my thing. And at the end of the talk, this Maori boy comes up, right? And he's beaming. I said, hey, hot shot, what happened to you, man? You look happy. He goes, man, it's so cool to know I'm not the only one that's fucked in the head. <laughs> and that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. If you know everyone else is struggling but they're faking it, the load gets lifted mm. off. So the inner critic and the voice of reason – uh, the two things, two constant in every human's life, right? But the voice of – so the inner critic used to keep us safe because if you didn't have an inner critic, if you didn't have this doubt, you'd walk up, oh, there's a lovely dinosaur. Holy <laughs> shit, it's eating me, right? So it used to – it warned you of yeah, danger, yeah, right? Yeah. But when there is no danger, it turns on you mm. and it makes things dangerous. So the inner critic should be 30-70. 30% inner critic, 70% voice of reason. I can tell you now factually that the inner critic controls 95% of our life and only 5% is the voice of reason. The voice of reason has quieted down because we're all riddled with self-doubt and we're all seeing this perfection and we think it's only us. 80% of suicidal kids never ask for help and the reason they never ask for help is because they're worried about what society's going to think, say, or do, and they're worried about disappointing their parents. That's the number one thing kids are I'm worried about disappointing my parents. Parents sacrificed everything. They've worked two jobs. They built a factory with their bare hands when they were eight years old. <laughs> and, you know, they've given me everything, yeah. and I don't want to go back to them and, and disappoint them. Yeah. So fourth thing, they're worried about what everyone's going to think, say, or do. And they're worried about disappointing people. What's our message to those kids? Hey, if you're in trouble, reach out and ask for help. That's an oxymoron. That's stupid. Why do we continue to put pressure on our most vulnerable to make the first move? Yeah, that's, it's funny you bring that up because that's something I've always thought. It's like everyone says, hey, if you ever need to reach out, just call me anytime, day or night. But that's, put, that's putting the onus on the on, sick person. Yeah, that's right. Why do we, you know, what the question needs to be is everyone needs to go home, look in the mirror and ask yourself, what are you doing to make it easy for your friends and kids to ask for help? If you haven't had a mate come to you in the last six months crying and talking about his feelings, not my kids are assholes and ungrateful shits and my wife's a bitch, actually talking about feelings. If you haven't had a kid come to you and talk about their feelings, you're the problem. You're the problem. And not because you're a bad person, 
but you're just someone that I feel I can't talk to because you're too perfect. Mm. You know, and 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 making yourself available to people isn't this dude. Hey guys, if you're feeling suicidal, <laughs> you can come to me. I'm there twenty four seven. Making yourself available is making yourself vulnerable. Mm. Yeah. Sharing. When you get home from from work, your kids know that you've had a shit day. They know something's on your mind. But if you don't share that with them, if you don't share the reason for that with them, they'll make it about themselves. Everything is about you. So you get home from work, your kid says, hey, Dad, how was your day? Fuck, my day was shit. Give me a fucking beer. I'm on the couch, right? Now your kid's walking to the fridge going, what the hell? Did you do that? You must have done something, Dad. You're always pissing Dad off. You know, as soon as he saw you, he was pissed off. But if you got home and go, son, I had the shittiest day. I yelled at one of my employees or one of my co-workers. I made a real dick of myself. Oh, man, I don't know what to say to that guy when I get there tomorrow. But, dude, thank you for noticing. Yeah. Thank you for being there for me, man. Give me a hug. I love you now. Go to the fridge, give me a beer, I'll be on the couch. And your kid's going to walk to the fridge and he's going to be going, I fucking helped my dad. Mm, I mm. was there for my dad. Yeah. You know, and it's a complete, and that builds that self-esteem, that sense of value, right? So every kid in New Zealand should feel good about themselves. They should feel, when they walk into a room, they should feel appreciated by their friends. They should feel loved by their families. Sadly, we've got kids out there who don't feel like good about themselves. They feel like nobody respects them and no one cares. And as a result of those two things, they shut down from their family and their relationship is shit. So we need to rebuild from the ground up. And in order for that to happen, my generation has to change. Mm. I'm sick of people coming up to me and saying, what's wrong with these kids these days? This is the greatest generation of kids in the history of the world. They have more empathy, more sympathy. They have more um, uh, great ideas. They have more caring than any other generation in the history of the world. We are fucking them up with our old school, you know, protect, provide, Give your kids a better opportunity and never yeah. show weakness. Yeah. And we need to change. Mm. Stop telling kids what to do. Start showing them what to do. Yeah. Jeez. Oh, my God. We, we've been talking for an hour. Have you got anywhere to be? Or? No. No? Okay, cool, cool. I'm, I'm, I'm loving this chat. And there's still so much more to – shit, you've done the work, eh? You've done with, – um, with your comedy, you did the work, and you got very good. And, and now I can tell you've, like, put the same – energy and enthusiasm into well, the so stuff. What I did, done but, the... but I did what everyone else – I didn't learn in books – in the, in the last 10 years, I've spoken to nearly 300,000 yeah. kids. Personally, when they contact you, it's a genuine contact. I give my number out to corporates and I get wankers trying to sell me shit. You know, <laughs> these kids are genuinely there and nine out of 10 times it's concerned for someone else. Yeah. You know, I've got a friend who's this and I've got a friend who's that. Uh, or it's about themselves and they just need reassurance that, you know, one – there is someone there, and two, that their thoughts are normal. Thanks, bro. Really appreciate your time. You're a great New Zealander. Oh, thank you, bro. Who's our sponsors? Ooh. Well, whoever you are, you're amazing. <laughs> and none of this would be possible without your sponsorship. There he is, the comedian. <laughs> Mike King, and the sponsor that he did want to thank <laughs> uh, was my friends at M's Power Cookies. Give them a follow on Instagram, M's Power Cookies, or you can buy them online at munchtime.co.nz. Hey, thank you very much for joining me for this episode of Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Hope to see you next week. Want 20% discount on the best earplugs for exercise? Ultra earplugs go in your ears and stay in there. Go to ultraaudio.com, that's U-L-T-R-O, and use the discount code DOM20. That'll save you around $35. That's ultraaudio.com, U-L-T-R-O, and the discount code DOM20. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.